this is the podcast for Indelible, the documentary in progress for the week of February 15th, 2018. In May of 2016, I became aware of Carl Harp's connection to a political group in Minnesota called the CO, two initials C and then O. It was mentioned that this group was criticized by his collective, the the anarchist Black Dragon, and their newsletter coming out of Walla Walla State Penitentiary during the 1980s. My research was actually the the late 70s. I want to correct that. My research about this group, including a phone interview with a former member of the CO living in England now, led me to learn about a similar group in the Bay Area in California, which had a ranch in Humboldt County called Tribal Thumb. Both Tribal Thumb and the CO had exactly the same structure and were led by charismatic former inmates. The one in Minnesota was described as aggressive and cult-like. The one in Humboldt had military-like arms training. Both of these organizations claimed to be interested in overtaking the independent food co-ops, which had sprung up in these areas, and were a threat to industrialized food growing and distribution. This was in the early 1970s. These efforts were effective in removing the efforts of food co-ops from being simple community programs for access to healthy, untainted foods. These two violent organizations, the CO and Tribal Thumb, had many signs of being designed designed and set up with the help of federal law enforcement. Federal law enforcement being merely the foot soldiers for whoever found that the food co-ops were a threat. It is unknown how many members of these two groups were aware of this background. Many participated because they were merely sucked in by the charismatic leaders. It was through my research on Tribal Thumb that I became aware of the surviving mercenary kid now in his 60s, currently sitting in federal prison and now being held past his sentence, past the expiration of his sentence, I should say. His sentence was extended illegally in May 2016, soon after I made public my awareness of his history. And I did that unwittingly. I didn't know about that that sentence, I mean, that uh, hearing during that time. His sentence was extended in part, or probably mostly, because of uh, the appearance by the Department of Homeland Security via video conference during that hearing, and that was unannounced, which is illegal. He's supposed to know who's going to appear at his hearing. From my research, I now understand that the Department of Homeland Security is also merely foot soldiers for larger, more powerful forces. These powers likely are those who control banking, the military, and the U.S. government.
Through a year of communication with this survivor kid, I learned a few new things, and not all from him. Some was gleaned by experiences I had because of my communication with him, including interactions with the Parole Commission and a phone call in September 2017, which calls into question who I was actually corresponding with in many of those emails. Over the past two weeks, I have spoken with many experts on prisons and law, and what has been confirmed by many is that when I gave my new phone number to the inmate at 11 p.m. in September, and he called me at 8.30 a.m. the following morning, it would have been impossible for this to have been him, who again is an inmate in federal prison. The call did come from the prison, but it could have been no inmate, as inmates are required to get new numbers approved before using them. And this doesn't happen in the middle of the night. It takes days or weeks. So whoever called had authority, which allowed him to make the call. Who was this? I don't know. But clearly this brings into questions the authenticity of the email correspondence from October 2016, excuse me, October, yeah, that's right, October 2016 through September 2017. It was communication which changed after June 13th, 2017, the same day as the hearing in federal court, my hearing, regarding the FOIA lawsuit I have with the FBI for documents on Carl Harp, my father, the journalist who began this research, and myself when I was at Carnegie Mellon University as a professor. Documents, these are documents I have been unsuccessful obtaining for the most part because of bias by the judge and the FBI's obfuscation. I do have a handwritten letter by the inmate about his training as a kid mercenary in California beginning at age 14, his targeting and then training, I should say. After the June 13 hearing, in email, if it was he, an email was sent attempting to change the story, and another email was sent making derogatory statements about Carl Harp, who was this in who this inmate never knew. So he never knew Carl Harp, but he started to say derogatory things about um, confirmed statements by Carl. He had never done this before in over a year. So this was a change in behavior. All this happened after I mentioned in court, in that court hearing, it's Judge Lasnik's courtroom, about kids being targeted and trained, including Harp, and how it was wrong, which caused the judge to fall silent and look down, as I mentioned in a June 2017 podcast. And I realized it was not the murder of Harp that seemed to concern the judge or the FBI, ter- or the FBI attorney. It was this history of this mercenary training of kids. 
And so I began to receive communications attempting to invalidate this history or change it. I stopped communicating with the inmate then at that time as it seemed the communication was being used for other purposes and not just because of these this change in stories but also because of uh, things I was asked to do that didn't seem right. Something was weird and it didn't seem like someone in his position would make such requests. I attempted to obtain a copy of the inmate's 2016 audio transcript from the parole commission hearing he had so I could voice print him and compare it with the voice of the caller in the September 2017 call. But this was blatantly denied, and illegally so. The inmate's civil case in federal court in D.C., the one that um, complains about him wrongfully being um, um, held past the um, end of his sentence, also became rife with bizarre filings. And I have mentioned this before. In that case, on December 4th, 2017, the court posted in his docket that mail to him from the court was returned undeliverable and unforwardable. Yet he is still in the same federal prison. And then in almost a taunting way, an attorney who historically defends the Department of Homeland Security allegedly volunteered to represent him. Given that his case complains about the Department of Homeland Security's wrongful stepping in to deny his release, this appears to be a huge conflict of interest, and again, more of a taunt. That attorney never did make an appearance in his case. In my mail to the inmate in September, oh, I'm going to start that again. Um, and my mail to the inmate in September was returned last week with the same label, undeliverable and unforwardable. So it seems that the inmate has been cut off from outside communication, at least through regular mail. I was told by several attorneys this is illegal. Sending email to him last week still resulted in a reply, but again, it is impossible to confirm that this is he. Going back to tribal thumb for a minute now. After this inmate's mercenary training, which began at age 14 and which included experiences which anyone could see would be harmful psychologically to someone that young, he was given large amounts of money and access to drugs. He was in all senses a soldier of sorts, trained in the use of automatic weapons at an early age, and he was rewarded with money as well as harmful drugs such as speed and barbiturates and an apartment. He was given an apartment with a 23-year-old girlfriend. And it's important to remember this is a kid from abject poverty who's a minor. He landed in um, DVI, which is a youth correctional facility in Tracy, 
for killing two people as a juvenile after this training. He escaped in 1973 and went north to Washington State, where a few years later he was called by a former roommate from DVI to come to Humboldt County as a trainer in weapons at Tribal Thumb. He trusted this person. This person had a father who worked in military intelligence, and he had been present during killings at another effort designed to invalidate the anti-war movement in California, the Manson family. Every time he appeared in this kid's life, something harmful happened. And this inmate, you know, defends this person endlessly and would never say a bad thing about him. So this is only my opinion. And I will refer to him as L. L met the kid at the bus in California, which he took from Washington State after receiving the phone call. And he was met with, as I said, with L and a woman the kid would later marry. Again, L brought the kid back to California. He seemed to hold much sway over him. I spoke to L prior to my learning about this survivor. I was directed to do so by a researcher who said he was in Walla Walla during the time of Carl Harp. I learned he arrived soon after Harp returned from San Quentin and just a few months before his murder. L made false statements to me about Harp, so I immediately decided he was someone to be wary of. And now I know he brought this kid back to California to be an arms trainer at Tribal Thumb. During that time, his wife, the inmate's wife, introduced by L and he, were directed to travel to Canada. And during a border crossing, they were called into an interview room with a customs official named Ken Ward. So Ken's the first name, and Ward, W-A-R-D, is the last name. Something happened during that interview, and robotically, this inmate shot and killed Mr. Ward. And I repeat, it was robotically done, and his wife introduced again by L, was in the room. And I have recently begun to wonder if she was the inmate's handler after his training. And um, William Pepper, an attorney, has talked about a clinic in California in that same area um, that was overseen by a University of California professor and doctor named, um, his name is, he had a nickname named Jolly, Jolly West. And you can look that up. I, I think I posted something about that on the website, on the Facebook page for, the, for Indelible. It was this crime that landed the, the kid survivor in federal prison for 38 years. I also have been wondering lately who was Ken Ward and did law enforcement want him taken out? 
Did he have that kind of a history? And that's something that I don't know. I haven't really researched that. Something was said to me during the email exchanges with this inmate. He told me that after the first crimes that landed him in DVI, his trainer removed him or removed himself from the kid's life. So he said he never heard from him again. And then um, later he would, he learned that he had been, he had died. And he believed this to be true. But in a letter exchange, when we were discussing France on an unrelated issue, he said he visited once with his wife. She was from there, and they visited her family, who seemed like a well-established family. He said he stayed for a while, but then had to go to Spain to help his trainer with a job. It's important to remember that this is after DVI, while he was out on escape from DVI. So this is sometime in the late 70s. So he was not cut off from his trainer, if this was true. How did he travel out of the country as an escapee? He said his trainer always provided him with fake IDs. And there's proof that this is true. Research supports it. I support this former kid and fight for his safety and fair treatment in prison and for his case because his life was removed from him after he was targeted for training at the age of 14. I see the government and military more responsible for these deaths and that he was merely this mechanical shooter made of flesh. Teenage girls in poverty are targeted for the sex trade males for this kind of extrajudicial, illegal military activity and as throwaways. It's important to notice his wife allegedly served a brief sentence in prison after the shooting of Ward, but was released and then became a lawyer. How does a felon become a lawyer? She worked with teenage kids in poverty. So similar to um, the inmate, the kid survivor. L, his former roommate from DVI, continued to be present at murders, including the shooting of a police officer in Seattle and the murder of a ranch manager by the Manson family, and he is free of prison. The survivor kid is constantly and illegally denied his freedom, and now he is denied communication from the outside. I was told by someone who knows prisons that this is a sign that he is likely under duress and in danger. If he is harmed as Harp was harmed in prison, it will be more evidence against those in authority, the false authorities, those who are in positions of power but take actions to harm rather than protest excuse me rather than protect the people who are the shooters in military style crimes where do they come from who trained them who gives them access to AK15 automatic weapons what purpose do these shootings serve these are things to consider 
And that's all I have for today. Good night.